Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Coming Clean podcast. I've spoken with you so much in one week. It's been awesome. Today, we are closing out our New Hampshire candidate series bonus episode with a discussion. Uh, between ACC Action, New Hampshire Young Republicans, New Hampshire College Republicans, with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, once again, for a town hall on economy, environment, and education. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you, Governor. Let's let's talk about the environment, an issue that uh, is notoriously easy for Republicans to talk about, right? Um, I actually want to kick off by uh, talking about your record, um, which I find very interesting because you're governor of North Dakota, um, an oil and gas state. Um, yet I, I took a few notes. Uh, you've done some really interesting stuff on environmental issues. In 2017, you created the state's first Department of Environmental Quality. Um, in 2021, when you were reelected, you announced a goal for North Dakota to be carbon neutral. By 2030, you've embraced carbon capture and storage technology and an all of the above energy strategy. Um, that's all really ambitious stuff on the environment, but you've also done that while maintaining economic growth and, and those other things that also really matter. Could you talk a little bit about uh, why you care about this issue and what you've done and what your track record as governor? Well, I think this ties into your organization and the and everything that you guys are working for uh, because we can solve every problem that's facing this planet environmentally or otherwise through innovation. We can't solve it with regulation. Absolutely. Innovation is what's going to get us there. So when we set the goal to be the first state to be carbon neutral by 2030, I, d- I announced that at an oil and gas conference. And everyone's like, what? And it's like, yeah, but no new regulations, no new mandates. Actually, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. That was, you know, two and a half years ago, and we've just kept cutting red tape. And now our oil production is is uh, as high as it's ever, almost as high as it's ever been. Our natural gas production hit a new high last month, and and we are in a position to, through carbon sequestration and carbon utilization, enhanced oil recovery, able to take care of all these issues. You don't have to like stop using liquid fuels to solve the CO2 problem, you just need to have innovation. And we've got a company that is capturing CO2 off of a, a gas plant in Wyoming. They built a 105-mile pipeline that comes through Montana into southwestern North Dakota into one of our older 1980s oil fields. They take that CO2, they compress it, and it becomes the liquid. They put it down old oil wells that they're not using down into that oil field. The CO2 stays down there, oil comes up, and every barrel of oil that comes up produces 500, there's, there's 500 more pounds of CO2 staying down and that barrel of oil comes up. They're the first carbon negative oil company in America. They're greener than Patagonia. Okay. Patagonia says we're going to be carbon neutral. These guys are carbon negative in terms of what they're putting in the ground. And so then, so then all of a sudden, okay, now guess what? We don't need to get rid of internal combustion machines. We don't need to subsidize. 
500,000 EV charging stations across America with your taxpayer dollars. We don't need to pay 7,500 bucks for someone to buy an EV that has a battery that's made in China. And then if it's made in China, because they control 85% of the rare earth minerals, it's being also made in a plant in China that is powered by coal. Because of the, there's, they've got 260 coal plants permitted. Uh, they're opening up one a week right now. They have more coal plants already than we have in the U.S. I mean, the Washington Post three weeks ago, praising China for their adoption of EVs. Like, aren't they amazing compared to the U.S.? Look at this. They're adopting EVs faster than we are. The whole article, I read the whole thing. It never mentioned the source of electricity. The source of electricity for all those EVs in China is coal plants. There's nothing about those EVs that are saving the planets. They're making it actually, they're emitting more CO2. And so this is, they're, they're, we can solve it with, with innovation. But what, I, what I'd like to say is, I mean, and, and with ethanol is the easiest thing. When you cook corn, two things happen. You get alcohol comes off it like a bootlegger still in the 1930s. And then guess what? CO2 goes into the atmosphere. But you, that CO2 coming off that corn process of cooking that corn, it's 99.5% CO2. You can capture that. You can use it for food grade carbonation for beverages. You can put it in a pipeline, ship it to North Dakota. We put it in the ground for permanent storage. Or I was literally at a meeting, what's today, say uh, Wednesday? Uh, yesterday morning, I was leading the Industrial Commission meeting uh, in North Dakota, which the governor chairs. They passed around a 12-inch by 12-inch slab that looked like a beautiful piece of granite that you would say, wow, that is gorgeous. Could I get that? Is that a sample? I could get that for my countertop and my island and my new you know, high-end home. Could I use it as a backsplash? 30% of the weight of that slab was CO2. You're like, what are you talking about? No, they take CO2, you inject it into other materials, you use an, a, an epoxy that it comes from a, a specialized epoxy. It, it seals the CO2 inside there. They're making cinder blocks. They're now making the. I knew they were making cinder blocks because now they have a lighter, weighter thing. Think of all the construction materials where cement is a high CO2 emitter. That can be actually, instead of emitting CO2 to make cement, you can actually have, have use it as a place to store CO2 in. So I just say, great, give us all the CO2 you want, because with advanced materials, we'll put it everywhere. They're, they're working on a project now to create a new form of asphalt where the CO2 is actually in the asphalt, as opposed to some concrete is one of the reason, one of the reasons why China is the world's largest emitter is because they, they are producing more concrete than anyone else, and they do it in a way that's super CO2 inefficient. So innovation could solve all of these problems. So if you, I mean, your whole organization is about, hey, let's get out of this fantasy world. Well, the answer is going to be is going to be innovation. So I, I, the the record we have is because I'm chasing innovation is what we're is what we're doing, and we're super excited about the future. And the other thing with CO2, in North Dakota, we're a huge ag producer. Guess what? We produce it. We produce agricultural products five months a year. You may have heard we have a thing called winter up there. Okay, so we're not growing stuff in the wintertime, but we have all this excess heat that's coming off the stuff. We've got it. one of our tribes is building one of the largest greenhouses in the nation. They've got all the technology from where your connections and family is from. I mean, they've been to the Netherlands like three times where all the cutting edge greenhouses, they're building these greenhouses in North Dakota, in the Northern Plains. They're going to take this excess CO2 coming off of these industrial processes and they're going to stick it in the greenhouse. And guess what? When you have a CO2 enhanced environment, you know, like 30% enhanced CO2, you get the, the tomatoes grow faster. I mean, you know, that's plants love CO2. They suck it up. They grow faster. 
and then they kick out oxygen as part of that process we all learned about in junior high. Uh, so it is like there are so many ways we can utilize the CO2 to, for beneficial use that that's the core of that's the core of how we envision getting to 2030. But by putting the shingle out and saying we can get carbon neutral, then that's where the 40 billion in capital came because everybody started coming and saying like in Minnesota they said wow we've shut down mining in Minnesota. We had some guys come to us last this last summer and they said we've got the rights to. 40 years worth of iron ore sitting on top of the ground in Minnesota that Minnesota will let us mine. Could we stick it on a train, bring it to North Dakota, process it into pig iron, capture the CO2 and stick the CO2 underground? Yes, good, because we'll have the first carbon neutral pig iron and we're going to end up with a $10 billion steel plant on the back end of that pig iron factory uh, because, and we'll have carb, low carbon intensive steel. And, not, and then you're saying, you know, and nobody has to even believe in climate change. I mean, I, does anybody, I, I've, I like milk. I've had milk my whole life. I cannot explain why someone will pay twice as much for a carton of organic milk as regular milk, because regular milk is fine for me, but some people are willing to pay the margin. There are markets all over the world where people will pay for low carbon, carbon intensive products and like sustainable aviation fuel. We, the United States can be the world leader in that because we can decarbonize all of our ethanol. So this could be a boon for, we could be exporting technology to solve these problems as opposed to killing the U.S. energy industry and letting that, because when you kill the U.S. energy industry, you, all you do is reduce supply. You don't reduce demand. The demand is still there. The demand gets filled by other countries that produce it less cleanly. So that's the biggest lie of all this stuff of we're going to somehow regulate CO2 out of the U.S. thinking that that's going to be a net negative for the world. It won't be. It'll be a net positive in terms of CO2 or a net increase in CO2 emissions because everybody else does it dirtier than we do. And what I find really interesting about your approach to these issues is rather than denying the problem, you just pivot to solutions. And I think a lot of the kind of instinct that we've seen uh, for quite a while among Republicans is, oh, we don't like the left solutions, so we're going to reject the problems altogether. We're not going to talk about the environmental problems that exist. We're not going to talk about climate change. And we just kind of like accept that, that the left narrative is wrong and, and the solutions suck. And, and to be clear, like a lot of the solutions do suck. Like you've talked about why they do suck, but we need to, po we need to come with our own more positive vision of why conservative solutions rooted in innovation and American leadership are going to be better. And it was interesting being at the first presidential debate um, and seeing the climate change question come up, which came up from one of our members, actually, um, and kind of seeing that dichotomy on the debate stage between like those who said, yes, it's real. Let's talk about the solutions versus those that said it's not real. And we know that this is an issue that really matters to young people, increasingly so, but it also matters to young conservatives. There's a poll the other day that found that 81% of young Republicans believe that climate change is real. We need to do something about it. My question to you is, if you were to be elected president, what's your vision of a conservative climate agenda that you would pitch to the country? Well, it would be on the lines of what we talked about, which is yeah, if you want to do EVs with Biden right now, the way Biden is doing it, then you're on Team China. I mean, get all our batteries from them. Don't you know? Don't don't produce rare earth minerals here. Don't do nuclear here because we're we, we've they're shutting down uranium mining in our country by creating national monuments, doing other things, and we're getting our uranium. We we have we have 93 nuclear plants in this country. It takes you 30 years to permit one, and we're buying our uranium from Russia, who we're in a proxy war with. I mean, it's just like completely goofy. But I'm, an, I'm a believer in all of the above. But liquid fuels, decarbonizing liquid fuels is cheaper, faster, and better for the environment than this whole EV thing because we don't have the, we don't have the, 
the recycling figured out, you know, on e on the EVs, EV fires. I mean, I was meeting with fire chiefs in in Iowa last week, and they're like, "Wow, if we ever have one of these fires in a parking ramp, why in a parking? Because they can't get a fire truck in a parking ramp. The ceiling height isn't high enough, and then in the amount of water to put out an EV fire is like five times as much as it takes to put out another one, and then you end up you're in a parking ramp, and all those toxic fluids are going down. So people haven't thought through that." The whole cycle of like, it's just like, oh, EV is great. Let's subsidize them. No, I mean, they're creating a whole new set of problems. I mean, we're, we're working on a project. I just was, we just were doing R&D in North Dakota on a wind blade, on wind blade recycling. That's going to be a huge issue. We're, and we're a huge wind producer, but everyone's like, oh, well, let's subsidize wind for 20 years and not think anything. What do you do with these massive, I mean, the, some of these wind blades are, are, are now uh 83 meters long, one blade, that's 250 feet long for a blade. I mean, there's no thought about, they're not going, you can't put them in a, in a landfill because of all the, the polymers and the plastics and all the stuff that are in there. So we're, we're, again, innovation, innovation, innovation would be the, would be the, the, the message. And it would be like a Team USA message as opposed to a Team China, because USA has, we've got the ability to innovate our way through these solutions as opposed to just saying, no, we're going to kill this old thing and then get rid of, and then get all of our new stuff from them. Last thing I'll say on this, which is ties in, because you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt when we were talking earlier, but this is critical for all of you to understand. When Theodore Roosevelt was president, the original, you know, cradle of conservation, where that came from was from when he was ranching in North Dakota. The Elkhorn Ranch is considered literally the cradle of conservation. He went out there to do one thing, and then he saw the West was disappearing. He saw what was happening, and it developed his whole ethic around that. The, that ranch of his is now in the middle of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, uh, which is the only park in the nation named after an individual, not named after a place. But he put away 240 million acres of federal land around the, the nation, 240 million acres. The largest landowner in America is the federal government. The largest mineral owner in the federal in, in the nation is the federal government. The largest timber owner in the in the United States is the federal government. And you know what the Biden administration wants? And this whole green fantasy thing is they don't want anybody to set foot on that. They want it to be wilderness. They don't want to cut a tree. Uh, they don't want to mine minerals. They don't want to mine, you know rare earth minerals for batteries. They don't want to they want to do oil production. We we've sued and won. I mean. Every president since Harry Truman has held the lawfully required once a quarter lease sales where the federal government would lease their land to a private sector to do oil and gas development. They have not now for, for 10 quarters have refused to hold the lease sales. They're just literally blatantly you know, violating the law. So part of the message is to young and old Republicans is, look, this is your land. It is not it's not does not belong to unelected bureaucrats that work for Joe Biden. The land belongs to the American people. And if we're going to win a Cold War with China and win these proxy wars, we have to bring our balance sheet to the party. And we have the strongest balance sheet in the world relative to untapped minerals, rare earth minerals, uranium. I mean, all the stuff we need for an all above strategy. And guess what? If you do it in the United States, it'll be done cleanly and it'll matter. Because like you asked me, like in North Dakota, wherever you are, Nobody cares more about the land than the people that live there. It's not some bureaucrat in Washington that's going to tell a, you know, a fifth-generation North Dakota farm family that you should care about clean water or soil health or clean air. No, they're raising their families there. We care about it. Guess what? We're doing everything I've talked about, and go look who's on the top of the list for clean air and clean water in the nation. North Dakota's always at the top of that list.
And so it's like, we, we can do it all. You can do it all and just get rid of this idea that somehow you can regulate your way to a solution. It's innovation that's going to get us there. I appreciate you mentioning Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he's, we consider him the godfather of our organization um, because I think a lot of this is not just the technical scientific aspect of the innovation, the technologies, but a lot of it's also philosophical, right? It's like, as conservatives, our, our instinct is to conserve. And that can be institutions, that can be our way of life, and that can also be the land that we all love, that we hunt on, that our farmers rely on. Um, and I think this philosophical angle is one that Republicans and conservatives need to be able to lean a lot more in on because you've talked about it. A lot of the solutions that we get from the left sound good, but they aren't actually good in practice. And whether it's with forest management or whether it's with subsidizing um, EVs that will just end up relying on China for, a lot of what we need to be doing is turning this narrative on its head that conservatives care about conservation. Uh, we can tackle climate change with innovation. And that's in our DNA. It's actually not an oxymoron. It's two in the same, right? And so I'd love to get your thoughts before we open it up to the floor, just on that philosophical angle. Like, how can conservatives win this battle of ideas on the environment and, and tell young people in this country that care so much about climate change and are overwhelmingly voting for the left that actually our approach is better? Well, I think it's better because it, it actually works. I mean, if you want a net result of saying, hey, we want to, you know, have clean air, clean water, clean soil, we want to do that, and the U.S. wants to do it. I mean, it's like we have to do it here. We cannot outsource, we can't outsource this, or, you know, we can't outsource our, you know, whatever environmental guilt to other countries. I mean, I'll give you two examples. One is in Alaska, there's the Alaska oil pipeline, which is, you know, quite famous, built in the 1970s. Everybody heard about it, opened up the North Slope. You know, it goes hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, from north to south and has never had a major spill. And the thing is built, you know, it's built above ground where it's above frozen tundra, so it doesn't use the heat to affect the sensitive Arctic environment. It's got shock absorbers for seismic activities. The thing is amazing. And before COVID, a Russian delegation came over and met with Governor Mike Dunleavy, a friend that's governor of Alaska, and said, hey, tell us about the pipeline because we're thinking about, you know, building one in, in Russia because they've got to move it like seven time zones to get it to the, to get it to the, uh, the ports, you know, near Europe before it could even begin its journey to New England, the, ru the dirty Russian oil I'm talking about. Okay. So they, he t they say, how much does it move a day? And he's like, well, 500,000 barrels a day. And they're like, no, no, we need two numbers. And he goes, what do you mean, two numbers? And they said, well, in, Ru in Russia, each pipeline has two numbers. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's the number we put in the beginning, and then there's the number that comes out the end. And so there is so much spillage along the way, they actually track two different numbers. They're either, it's either pirated or it's spilled. And in a place like North Dakota or Alaska or Wyoming or Texas, I mean, if you have a spill, reportable spills vary by state, but in North Dakota, I mean, if you spill a bucket worth of oil, it's a reportable incident and it's reported to the county, to the state, to whatever. And if it's spilled, it's on an oil pad, you know, which has been constructed and inspected. that has got berms. It can't get on the soil. I mean, and, and when we're doing, I mean, a North Dakota well, we go down two miles and then use technology to go sideways for at least two miles, some now three, some four. They're staying in a 30 foot strip. You've heard of the word the Baca, where all this oil is coming from. The Bakken is a geologic formation that's only 30 feet thick. I was in an oil sh drilling shack 
And it's not like some 1950s, uh, you know, black and white, you know, movie where everybody's covered with oil and the stuff spraying all over. No, it's like, it's like kids with two college degrees in computer science and physics that are, you know, doing the, the geotechnical work. And I said, how do you possibly go down two miles and then go over two miles and not get outside of a 30-foot strip? They're 10,000 feet underground when they're doing this. They're two miles underground. That's less than one-third of 1% tolerance that you could move. And he said, sir, if your house was two miles down and two miles over, I could drill the lockout on the front door. I mean, they, they have that much precision in what they're doing. And now we've permitted this year more three-mile laterals and four-mile laterals. So all that drilling activity across four square miles is occurring on a spot that might be less than four acres. So the surface impact is almost nothing and it's all controlled, you know, versus other places in the world, no way they're doing anything in or close to, to what, we're, what we're doing here. So we, we have such an opportunity to be an exporter of technology to other places, or we can export our energy because by the way, you want global stability, South Korea, Philippines, Japan, all completely energy dependent, all getting that from Indonesia, the Middle East. And now we have China with the world's largest Navy ready to blockade Taiwan. If they do that, it's going it, to, the stock market will crash the next day. Every price will go higher. It's going to make COVID supply chains look like nothing. 30% of the world's economy goes through the South China Sea. So if they make a move there, and then guess what? Our allies, like my dad was in the U.S. Navy in World War II fighting, made it all the way to, you know, made it all the way to Japan. They import a hundred 100% of their oil and gas. They have no oil and gas. And then we could be supplying that from Alaska with clean energy, but uh, no, Biden administration said, oh, we're going to allow some drilling in Alaska. That Strategic Petroleum Reserve area in Alaska is the size of Indiana. They've, they've permitted and allowed the size of two square miles, like size of like a golf course, is all that the Biden administration has done. So we're, we're not only hurting our own U.S. energy industry and raising costs here, we're also doing it for our allies. So when I say sell energy to our friends and allies versus buy it from our adversaries, the world gets cleaner. Global, you know, dictators, brutal dictators that are brutalizing their people and their countries, they lose a bunch of power because they're getting their power and their funding, like Iran, the world's largest sponsor of terrorism, getting all their revenue from oil exports, which we're now allowing. So you, you stop inflation, you stabilize the world, and you strengthen our allies. I mean, it's, it, you can't separate energy policy from national security from the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also why it's so important for the U.S. to lead on carbon capture technology, because we can't just export our energy, we can also export our technology. And if we can help those countries that are using our oil and gas, first of all, it has lower emissions, but for the emissions that do still exist, we can help them reduce those as well with the technology. Um, let's open it to the floor. I'm sure there's a few questions. So just put up your hand and I'll call on you if you have any. Hi there, Margaret Kennedy with New Hampshire Young Republicans. I'm the vice chair. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, so my question revolves around uh, clean energy. As president, how would you encourage our country's governors to consider clean energy such as nuclear power and integrating it into their plans moving forward so we could have cleaner energy? In uh, thank you for the question and thanks for your leadership. Uh, the, the nuclear energy one is, is interesting because that's one area where a lot of this stuff should be handled by the states, but the nuclear stuff, the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Agency and a lot of the stuff that belongs under the Department of Energy they're the ones that have created all the red tape where it literally takes 30 years uh, to get a plant built. 
uh, there is a, and, and when those plants, the ones that have been built, the ones we think about, the ones you've seen in the movies, they're all like 1,100 or 1,500 megawatts. But there's some really exciting stuff that's going on. We got to have a whole new regulatory regime for for small for small uh, nuclear because there's some 10 megawatt units that are being developed. Wyoming is working on one of these in coal country. There, you know, th- there's places in Alaska where they have no electricity, and we're not going to build a power line for 250 miles across the wilderness to get to a small remote uh, village in Alaska. But we could give them a 10 megawatt uh, self-contained nuclear reactor, which is built at a place like Wyoming, and we ship it up there and drop it in, and it doesn't take you know 30 years to permit and build. And so those small form factor ones, that's a whole new thing where we, for rural areas, for do, for, you know, for military bases around the around the real world, we could be you know doing those. So there's a bunch of innovation that could happen around nuclear that's different than the way we've done it at this, you know, the way the U.S. historically or the way France has done on this large scale thing that scares everybody. But let's just also understand that as soon as you say nuclear, it's like, well, not in my backyard. There is, there is no, there's never been a, a death from a nuclear plant in the United States. And I've had people ask me, would you live next to a nuclear plant? I said, sure. And they said, would you have your family live next to one and your kids? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, really? And I go, yeah, well, when we were growing up on the farm and we're raising the kids on the farm, I said, we lived right next to a, a highway. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we kill 45,000 people a year on highways, and they were all driving on those highways. We've never killed any 45,000 a year, almost consistently my whole life. It used to be higher than it got below 40,000. Now it's back up again. But through all of that, so millions of people have died on our highways, and nobody is afraid of like buying a car, basically, but everybody's afraid of a nuclear plant. And it's like, at some point, we got to get past, we got to get into the reality of the facts, which is there've never been a nuclear death in our in our in our country because of that and these new smaller form factors and what they're doing with the nuclear waste they're solving a bunch of the problems so again it's innovation it's not regulating them uh regulating to death but you know meanwhile here you know they, there is a hundred percent green hydro power line coming from quebec you know that was going to come down through maine and that thing can't get 10 years they've been trying to get that permitted and then New York wants to shut down Indian River, which is providing like 20% of the nuclear plant, which provides 20% of the electricity. So we're going to shut down nuclear. You can't replace it with hydro, but we're going to build, you know, I mean, at least 20% or more or 30% of those 500,000 charging stations would have to be in the northeastern part of the U.S. because that's where the population is and that's where the cars is. So we don't have a grid to actually provide the power to go to those charging stations because we're prematurely shutting down baseload. We're shutting down nuclear, but somehow in this fantasy world, we're going to have enough charging stations that are actually going to work to charge these EVs, which the fire departments, you know, can't put the fires out on. So it is a, it is a, like it, it, the physics doesn't work and the economics doesn't work. And, and there's one estimate that if you just implemented all the things they're talking about, including we're going to ban gas stoves and all that other stuff, that would be another like $137 billion a year tax on consumers because you'd have to replace 200 million 200 million electrical appliances in the United States and then not have a power grid. I mean, you're replacing 200,000 gas-powered appliances with electric ones at the same time we want to have electric cars. So we're not going to have electric homes, electric cars, and electric everything, but we don't have the grid or we don't have the base transmission and you can't get a power plant permitted and you can't get a transmission line permitted. So again, when I say fantasy, I say fantasy because none of it adds up to the math to actually implement it, but they're charging ahead with the, with the 500,000 charging stations. 
with your taxpayer money. I think there's a really strong argument to be made that those that have opposed nuclear energy have actually done the most harm to being able to bring clean electricity on the grid and tackle climate change in this country. And similar, you mentioned permitting reform and the importance of changing regulations. Right now, it's government red tape that's the number one obstacle to clean energy coming on the grid because we simply can't permit it, whether it's a nuclear plant or a hydro plant um, or wind and solar, like none of that stuff can get built because of government red tape. Um, any other questions? Yeah. You want to shout it out? Yeah, I'll say it. Um, so you keep talking about less regulations. Um, the number of regulations and the quality of regulations are, are very different. What are you going to do as president to make sure that the cuts that are being made are being done smartly and um, are d done effectively to meet your ends? Well, I think we'd apply the same uh, approach that we do in, we've done in North Dakota where we've been doing this, which is uh, we want to make sure that we're doing two things, which is we want to apply the law and apply the science. Uh, and then and then get rid of the ideology. I mean, we're data driven, not ideologically driven. So it's like, and if the goal is we want to have, uh, you know, clean, safe, stable, low cost uh, power, you know, then how do we get there? Well, you don't get there through some ideology. You get there through, and which turns out the best way to get there is through innovation, not regulation. So just a quick follow up on that. If coal is not cost effective without government subsidies, uh, would you support further uh, leasing and, and coal industry? Well, in North Dakota, coal is, coal is uh, cost effective without government subsidies. And the issue then, if you say it's not about the coal, it's about the CO2, then you'd say, well, then can we take CO2 off of coal? And the answer is yes. And we're all of our lignite coal, which lies just below the surface of the ground. So we don't do mining like you think of like West Virginia. This is like take off the topsoil. There's literally like 12 to 20 feet of coal that's right there. You load it in a truck, you put it back and I mean, I could drive you to places that 40 years ago were a lignite coal mine in North Dakota and all, and you're going to be like, I don't believe you because people are just farming and grazing and cows. Because if you, if you do all that reclamation with the way we've done it there, you can't even tell it's ever been, been developed. But the, the, the key thing for us going forward, if we're in a battle with rare earth minerals, the reason why they call them rare earth minerals is they occur in parts per million. I mean, like very, very small things. Some of the highest concentrations now of, a, the, of the study that's been done by the U.S. Geologic Survey across our nation, some of the highest concentrations of rare earth minerals are in lignite coal in places like North Dakota. It is completely uneconomic to take off the topsoil, go down there with these giant hose and, you know, pull out that lignite and then process, you know, a million pounds to get enough to do 10 batteries. That, that's non-economic. China's doing that. I mean, they're tearing up Indonesia. They're tearing up Central Africa. They're tearing up the whole planet with no environmental thing to get those minerals, which they ship back to, to uh, China to make a battery to send to us. But if you are doing decarbonized, low cost, highly stable, low sulfur, uh, no, I mean, no nitric oxide, no sulfur oxide, because we've t figured out the last 30 years how to take all that stuff out. You take all that out. So you've got clean base load. And then the process of moving through those millions of pounds of coal gives you an opportunity to economically develop those rare earth minerals. So there's, there's an economic system that's there. And it turns out that all the coal in North Dakota is sitting right on top of the, the nation's best CO2 storage. We can store all the nation's CO2 for the next 50 years. Uh, if, you can, if, if you could get the CO2 to North Dakota, we don't have enough of it there right now, but we're, we've got 250 billion tons worth of CO2 storage, 6,000 feet underground. 
naturally occurring in this 300 foot band of sandstone. So it is a, uh, so, I mean, to your, to your question, uh, I'm not for subsidies, but we've subsidized wind. We're subsidizing, uh, you know, ethanol. We've subsidized almost all these other things that we're doing. And it'd be great if they would all go away and you get back to a market base, but it's hard to have some of them. It's hard to have some of those go away. And it's hard for the private sector because the private sector has made capital commitments based on the fact that they're there. So if they're going to go away, they'd have to be sunsetted way out in the future so that people could make decisions about, am I building this giant plant or not based on, on that, that. But a lot of the, quote, subsidies are actually tax credits. And so nobody gets the credit unless you actually generate the income. And you don't generate the income unless you make billions of dollars of investments. And so that's different than some of the stuff the Biden administration is doing where they're just sending checks to people. I mean, a tax credit has to actually drive capital investment from the private sector first. But anyway, thanks for thanks for that good question. I think it's time to pivot to our final topic on uh, education. Before we do that, just uh, quickly, if people want to learn more about what the, uh, the American Conservation Coalition Action does on this, it's all about conservatives that care about conservation. We care about the environment, but we do it with the solutions that we talked about today. Some of the things that the governor has pioneered in North Dakota. Um, you can check us out at accaction.eco.eco. Um, but thank you for your leadership on this issue. Thank you for your time. And we'll pass it over to the final topic. And sir, I saw I had your hand up, but I'll be around afterwards. Come and ask me your question. Okay. That's it for our New Hampshire Candidate Series. I hope you enjoyed these. And if you did, please reward us. Give us a little reward with a subscription on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you really enjoyed us, please leave a review that tells us what we're doing. Well, uh, our next episode, we're going to have with ACC CEO, Danielle Butcher-Friends, my good friend, and we're going to be going over climate grants. And so there's still time. If you want to submit yours, coming clean at acc.eco, go ahead and email us a video or audio clip. And we just may include it in our episode that we do in a couple of weeks. Take care. Until then, we're excited to talk with you soon. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.